a good day, everybody. It's a great day. I have been waiting for quite a long time to record a story about my home country, Australia. You know, Australia is internationally known, I think, as having some pretty crazy animals. Uh, you know, when you're when you're here, when you live here, when you're born here, you don't really see it that way. To me, the animals in North America, just North America, seem so much worse. You've got brown bears, you've got cougars, you've got wolves, all that kind of stuff. That, to me, is more terrifying. But for some reason, Australia is sort of internationally recognized as the world hotspot for stupid, dangerous animals. And as such, there are... Uh, there are quite a few stories of animal attacks, which is true. And I've been dying to tell some Australian stories. Um, there are a few to pick from. You know, the one story I'm interested in talking about was the stingray that killed Steve Irwin. But I thought, you know, a little too soon. Also, I don't know how interesting that was. I mean, just stingray stabbed him in the heart and that's the end of the story. Um, you know, there's the Azaria Chamberlain you know, Dingo Took My Baby story, which definitely want to get into. I think we'll do that in season two. A lot of people are interested in that. Um, but the story I want to talk about today is somewhat of a internet phenomenon meme uh, story. The Great Emu War, <laughs> which I have always heard about. I know the premise, you know, the Australian army versus some emus and the emus won, but I never looked into it further, further than that. Um, but I did for this episode. And it is just as ridiculous as you would think it is. It's it's worth the reputation <laughs> that it has, um, you know. Uh, so yeah, I'm I'm re <laughs> really excited to get to do this episode. It's gonna be much more of a lighthearted uh, affair than the last previous, I think, seven or eight episodes, because um, we've had some pretty, you know, emotionally wrecking stories lately. Tilikum the whale is like really sad. Tilikum was abused, you know, and he killed four, uh, three people. Yeah, three out of four. Yeah, he killed three people. Um, the kids that were eaten and killed by those, like, pythons, that's devastating. Uh, you know, the Chompawat tiger at the very beginning, that's sad, but it's a very long time ago. But still, 430 people died. What else did I talk about recently? Gustav. Um, oh, the Timothy Treadwell stuff. It's been a sad season, so I thought, you know, why not have... A, a, you know, a light-hearted episode. It's probably not going to go as long as the usual ones do because there's not that much information on this. Um, but let's just relax. Let's just have crack a smile for once. Um, having said that, it's not all shits and giggles, you know. And that might be the first swear I've ever done in the podcast. I don't know. I hope you guys are okay with swearing. Um, well, it's not all happy, happy, happy. Some emus did die, but. It's, it's man-eaters. Someone's going to die in every episode of the podcast, whether it's an animal or a human. Um, yeah, so, of course, emus are not man-eating animals. I don't know if there have ever been any cases of emus killing people. I know that ostriches kill people, and I know that cassowaries can be really dangerous because they, um, they have, like, toes, like knives, and they can kick you. And there was a case of a, a woman... I think in either Australia or Papua New Guinea, but she got kicked in the chest near her heart and she died from a cassowary. But emus, I don't know. I'm not 100% sure. They they could kill you. They're pretty scary. I remember I went on a uh, visit to a part, like an animal sanctuary slash animal park in Tamworth. They had emus um, and I would do the, the noise. They make this noise. They go, like that. And I would do that to, I guess, <laughs> like annoy <laughs> the emus one of them chase me and they're quite big and they hiss and they're scary so it's not out of the realm of possibility that you could be killed by an emu um but as far as i'm aware it, it hasn't happened although don't don't 
quote me on that. I did not check. Uh, at least no humans die from emus in this story. It's the other way around. So, yes, like I said, more of a lighthearted episode. Just sit back and relax. Crack a smile. Crack a tinny, since we're talking about an Australian episode. What else do Australians do? Chug a beer. I don't know, grab a bag with your friend, do a key bump. Um, th this is modern Australian culture, is basically just alcoholism and drug abuse, uh, but that's fine, you know, we've just gotten out of a lockdown. Let's party, folks. Okay, all right. This is maybe the weirdest and worst intro I've ever done, but I'm tired. I've just recorded another episode right before this, so we're pushing through. I'm not re-recording this. Let's just get into the story. Ladies and gentlemen and everybody else, um, this is it. This is the story of the Great Emu War. Now, before we get into all the wacky shenanigans of a group of Australians with machine guns trying to and failing to kill a large number of flightless birds, let's get some important historical context understood first. After returning from combat in World War I, the Australian government gave plots of land to large numbers of discharged soldiers who fought in the army. They were to use this land to take up farming in Western Australia. These plots of land were in mostly agricultural marginal areas, and with the effects of the Great Depression in full effect in the 1920s, farmers were encouraged by the government to increase their wheat crops. In exchange, the government promised assistance in the form of wheat subsidies. By the way, the government completely failed to follow through the promises of these subsidies. Despite the government's recommendations and the promise of farm subsidies, the price of wheat continued to fall. By 1932, things were at a fever pitch and farmers were preparing to harvest their seasonal crop of wheat whilst concurrently refusing to deliver it. Things got even worse for the farmers in Western Australia with the sudden arrival of 20,000 emus. For those of you who don't live in Australia, uh, maybe you're American, uh, and by the way, America, it's pronounced emu, not emu, okay? It's not an emu, it's an emu. And for those of you who don't know, emus are large flightless birds endemic to Australia. That means they don't live anywhere else. Uh, they are the second largest species of bird on Earth after their cousins, the ostrich, and they're related to ostriches, cassowaries, and rheas. Emus can grow up to 2.9 meters tall and can travel vast distances, sometimes reaching speeds of over 50 kilometers per hour. Emu regularly migrate after their breeding season, heading from coastal regions back inland. Now this year, the emus returned to find cleared out land and additional water supplies that were being used to house and water livestock such as cattle and sheep. The emu found these new agricultural areas good habitat and began to encroach into farm territory, particularly in the areas around Chandler and Walugan. Walugan? No. Walgut? Walgulan. Walgulan. Man, we have some weird names <laughs> for, for towns in Australia. Um, but having said that, Chandler is also a, a weird name. To that, that Chandler, that's that's a guy from Friends. That's not a town. Anyway, in addition to drinking water that the farmers had made available for their livestock, the emus also consumed and destroyed their crops, as well as creating large gaps in the fences where rabbits and other vermin could enter and cause further issues on the farm. After a while of this, the frustrated farmers organized a group of ex-soldiers to travel and meet with the Minister of Defense, Sir George Pierce. The soldiers, having used machine guns in World War I, were well aware of their effectiveness and requested the army deploy machine guns in an attempt to cull the emus that were encroaching on their land. The minister enthusiastically agreed, although there were a couple of caveats. Condition number one, the machine guns were only to be used by current military personnel. You can guarantee that this bummed a lot of those farmers out who thought they were gonna get to fire a Tommy gun. <laughs> Condition number two, 
Troop transport was to be organised and paid for by the Western Australian State Government. And condition number three, the farmers would provide food, accommodation and pay for the ammunition of the deployed servicemen. The Minister for Defence also supported this operation on the grounds, and I'm quoting here, the birds would make good target practice. Yep, that's a great reason to do this. Many in the government also supported this move, as they believe that supporting the farmers now would help stave off a movement by the farmers to one day secede from the rest of Australia. And uh, yeah, Western Australia has not seceded from Australia yet, although I'm to understand that they are still interested. I don't know. I've never met anyone from Western Australia, and nor do I want to. No, <laughs> that was... I didn't, I didn't mean that. I love you. Anyone who lives in Perth or Broome, I love you. And anyone from out of those two cities, I, I cannot name another city in Western Australia, so just assume you live there. Military involvement began in October of 1932. The operation was conducted under the command of Major G.P.W. Meredith of the 7th Heavy Battery of the Royal Australian Artillery. Joining Meredith was Sergeant S. McMurray and Gunner J. O'Halloran, each armed with a Lewis machine gun and a combined 10,000 rounds of ammunition. The mission was delayed due to a storm which caused the emu to disperse over a wider area. In early November, the troops were deployed and they were tasked with collecting at least 1,000 emu skins so that their feathers could be used to make hats for the light horsemen. On the 2nd of November, the men travelled to Campion where this nonsense began. A mob of 50 emus was spotted. The birds were out of range of the guns, so the local settlers attempted to corral them into an ambush. The birds immediately split into smaller groups and bolted, making them very difficult to target. While the first burst of bullets was ineffective due to the range, a second spray of gunfire did in fact kill a small number of birds. Later that same day, a smaller flock was encountered with a dozen birds that were killed. This was where their luck ended. Two days later, on the 4th of November, Meredith had organised an ambush near a local dam and more than 1,000 emus were spotted heading towards that position. This time, Meredith ordered the gunners to hold their fire until the birds were in range. When the men started to fire, their gun jammed after only killing about 12 birds, a grand total of 1.2% of what they had hoped to get that day. The emu were not spotted again in that area for a while. <laughs> In the following days, the troops moved south where emus had been spotted, but again, they only had limited success in bagging more emus. Any time the men approached, the mobs would split into smaller and smaller groups evading capture. By the fourth day, observers noted that, quote, Each pack seems to have its own leader, a big black plume bird which stands nearly six feet tall and keeps watch while his mates carry out their work of destruction and warns them of our approach. In frustration, Meredith mounted one of the guns to the back of a truck, a move that was remarkably ineffective as the truck was not fast enough to keep up with the birds and the ride was so bumpy that the gunner was unable to fire a single shot from the gun. <laughs> By the 8th of November, six days after the operation had begun, 2,500 rounds of ammunition had been spent. The number of birds killed is uncertain, but one account estimated that it was about 50 birds. For those keeping track at home, this means that 5% of their target had been killed, but they had only spent but they had spent 25% of their ammunition. Meredith's official report noted that his men had suffered no casualties, which is a really low bar when you are fighting birds. Summarizing the culls, ornithologist Dominic Serventy commented. 
The machine gunner's dreams of point-blank fire into serried masses of emus were soon dissipated. The emu command had evidently ordered guerrilla tactics, and its unwieldy army soon split up into innumerable small units that made the use of military equipment uneconomic. A crestfallen field force therefore withdrew from the combat after about a month. <laughs> After poor media coverage of the operation, Pierce withdrew the troops and the guns. After the withdrawal, Major Meredith compared the emus to the Zulus in Africa and commented on the striking maneuverability of the emus, even when badly wounded. This comment, among other things, is really weird and also pretty racist. He quotes, If we had a military division with the bullet-carrying capacity of these birds, it would face any army in the world. They can face machine guns with the invulnerability of tanks. They are like Zulus, whom even dum-dum bullets could not stop. Again, racist. Do not compare black people to animals, please. In the weeks following the military withdrawal, the emu attacks on crops resumed. Farmers again requested support from the army, claiming that the hot weather and drought had brought even more emus into the farmland than before. The Premier of WA, James Mitchell, strongly supported a renewal of the military assistance. At the same time, a report from the base commander was issued that indicated 300 emus had been killed in the initial operation. Acting on this new information from the base commander report, on the 12th of November, Pierce again approved deployment of military efforts. He defended his decision in the Senate, where many of his colleagues thought this whole thing was just silly, claiming that soldiers were necessary to combat the serious agricultural threat caused by the large emu population. Although the military had agreed to lend the guns to the Western Australian government on the expectation that they would provide the necessary people, Major Meredith was once again placed in the field due to an apparent lack of experienced machine gunners in the state. Taking back the field on the 13th of November 1932, the troops found a degree of success over their first two days, managing to kill around 40 emus. On the third day, they were far less successful, finding their machine guns ineffective against the emus. However, by the 2nd of December, the soldiers were killing approximately 100 emus a week. Meredith was recalled on the 10th of December, and in his report he claimed 986 kills with 9,860 rounds, at a rate of exactly 10 rounds per confirmed kill. In addition, Meredith claimed that 2,500 wounded birds had died as a result of the injuries that they had sustained. In asserting the success of the cull, an article in the Kulgari Minor on the 23rd of August 1935 reported that although the use of machine guns had been criticised in many quarters, the method proved effective and saved what remained of the wheat. Despite the logistical problems encountered with the cull, farmers of the region once again requested military assistance in 1934, 1943 and 1948 only to be turned down by the government, presumably because they had worked out that sending two bogans out with tommy guns wasn't as effective as putting up a fence. Throughout the 1930s and onwards, exclusion barrier fencing became a popular means of keeping emus out of agricultural areas, in addition to other vermin such as dingoes and rabbits. In November 1950, Hugh Leslie raised the issues of emus in federal parliament and urged Army Minister Hosea Francis to release a quantity of 303 ammunition from the army for the use of farmers. The minister approved the release of 500,000 rounds of ammunition. In recent years, references to the Great Emu War have been an internet meme and the subject of at least one shitty podcast. In 2019, a musical adaptation of the story was workshopped in Melbourne, and a movie retelling the events of the Great Emu War, written by John Cleese, Monty Franklin, and Rob Schneider, is slated for release in 2022. <laughs> wow. There you go, guys. That is the, 
the Great Emu War. Um, just ridiculous. Just just nonsense. <laughs> I love my country so much. Like, we have a lot to answer for. I think that the keeping of refugees off-site in off-site detention centers is terrible. I think that what we have done to the indigenous population here, not fantastic. I think we have uh, deep systemic racism in, in some places and uh, and as a whole, you know, as with a lot of countries in the Western world, uh, we are deeply polarized. However, I love my country and only Australia could have a story called the Great Emu War <laughs> where the military was fought, that sent to fort sent to thwart uh, a group of uh, emus and, you know, failed on almost every account. One thing I learned while re researching this and um, writing this script, this wasn't as big a failure as I thought. Like, when I heard of stories about the Great Emu War, I had, you know, I had this image in my head of platoons of soldiers, dozens of soldiers, you know, going out there <laughs> trying to, like, kill these emu and the emu surrounding them and kicking them and killing people and, and escaping unharmed you know they did kill a, a, you know a numerous amount of um of emus you know after that first kill you know the first estimate was 50 it is interesting to me that the report the official report said 300 which is you know a whole 250 more than the initial uh estimate but whatever let's assume they were correct they still you know there were 20,000 emus in, in Western Australia in this farming territory and they only managed to kill probably less than a thousand so not a super effective cull um by the way and look I'm not super educated on this subject but when it comes to culls I'm, I'm not a person that is opposed to uh culls when they're necessary especially when it comes to invasive species like if there's a feral pig cull that sucks. It's sad for the pigs. I don't like it, but they shouldn't be here in the first place. And that's not their fault. That's our fault for bringing them. But when you have animals like dingo and uh, emus and kangaroos, I really resent the idea that, <laughs> of them being called vermin or pests. Because this is their, it's their fucking house. They live here. They were here a lot longer than us. So unless you're, you know, an indigenous or first nations person, I don't think you have the right to call them pests. You know, you're the pest. Um, I don't really love the idea of culling kangaroos um, and dingoes and, and emus, but I understand in some cases it, it is necessary. The Great Depression, the economy collapsing, I can understand and I can empathize that there were bigger problems than, you know, the feelings of some flightless birds. Don't love it, but I can empathize with it, you know? And, you know, kangaroos... Uh, can be pretty bad for the for the environment when left unchecked. That's why dingoes should not be culled at all. So dingoes help keep the kangaroo population. This is this is a wildly off-topic subject, but dingoes are great for you know naturally culling the number of controlling the number of kangaroos in an area. That if the you know the top of the food chain is disturbed, it means that the the rungs underneath expand, and then the kangaroos eat all the vegetation, which can cause erosion of the soil, which like. It's all this beautiful connected tapestry and you can't take part of it out. So, uh, I think that, <laughs> see, in general, I think that, yeah, the, the culling of native animals is not, not ideal and you shouldn't do it unless you really have to. And I think in, you know, the 2020s, uh, we should have moved beyond that point. I can't believe that they had the thought of a rabbit-proof fence or, you know, an invasive fence for the emus before they thought of like, well, we'll just send like... Hank and Barry out with a Tommy gun, and they'll they'll sort it out for us. Bazer and Hank um, didn't didn't work as effectively as I thought. I also love the idea of um, 
<laughs> Major Meredith, who's like an officer in the army, getting the weirdest and shittest job. <laughs> like, uh, Major Meredith, uh, thank you for your efforts in the war. You come highly commended. Um, we have a new job for you. Uh, you're going to take a couple soldiers, uh, two guns and 10,000 rounds of ammunition, and you're going to kill 20,000 emus for us. Thank you very much. It's just a it's just a crap job to begin, and I think that guy was set up to fail. Maybe he maybe there was someone in in that uh, chain of command that just didn't like him, wanted him to fail, and ultimately he did. And and uh, you know today all that's left of this story is just a a bit of a meme that we can all have a laugh about, um, including on this crappy podcast. So thank you for joining me today on this crappy podcast um, called Man Eaters. It's been really nice to uh, have a more lighthearted episode. I think it's important to have one of these each uh, season. And don't you worry, because I know exactly the funny episode we're doing in season two, by the way. Um, there are a series of monkey stories <laughs> that none of them are large enough to do a whole episode by themselves. They're just little, you know, tidbits of information, but virtually any story of a monkey attacking a person is really funny. Um, people have died from monkey attacks, uh, and, you know, they're funny to me, so we'll talk about them next season. We'll probably do an episode called Monkey Madness, where we just talk about two or three or four funny little mini monkey episodes, <laughs> mini monkey stories, um... But yeah, it's, it's important to have a laugh every now and again. Um, I know that this episode followed a pretty, you know, sad episode with Tilikum, and the episode following it um, will either be well, it'll it'll be a shark episode, um, which you know, shark attacks are rarely funny, so <laughs> it's probably going to be dark then. And of course, and this is the first time revealing this, by the way. But episode ten, um, a story I've wanted to talk about for a while, probably one of the more infamous recent animal encounters. Uh, we're going to end this season in two more episodes, episode 10, season finale, season one, we are going to talk about Harambe. I'm very excited for that, and I'm sure you are too. Thank you for joining me for Man Eaters. Uh, two more episodes left, a shark story, and then of course, finishing with Harambe. So stay tuned, follow the podcast, do all the horse shit, and uh, yeah, see you next time. Stay safe, everybody. Stay smiling. Bye.